The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. If you guys have your Bibles with you, I want to bring your attention to our passage this morning. It's in 1 Peter. So we continue in our series, this verse-by-verse series through the book of 1 Peter. And just as a reminder, if you're, if you're new with us and uh, maybe jumping in here for the first time, we've been walking through this book. It's been a uh, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Peter to, to uh, Christians and uh, his friends um, actually all around. Uh, it wasn't one isolated church, but uh, it's applicable to so many uh, Christians and also applicable to us today. The main theme really is, is talking how do we uh, engage with the world around us uh, while maintaining our allegiance to Jesus. And so each, each uh, day we've been looking at a different passage and having that theme in our mind. And, and today we look at verse uh, 9 through 12. And there's a little overlap because last week we read, I think, up through uh, verse 10. And so we kind of go back a couple verses and, and, and going to go forward. So uh, there's a little overlap in, in what we did last week. But I'll begin reading in verse 9 in chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, this this sermon is... Is, this morning is really just that. It's a, it's a sermon. You know, a sermon is, is this discourse through a passage of Scripture. But it's, it's more than that this morning. It's also uh, a paradigm. It's a pattern for how to live. It is a posture that we have uh, with people around us. It's a lifestyle that we find ourselves in. Um, it's a model. It's a philosophy. It's a way to live. It is, it is all of these things. And this passage is, is more relevant today than it's been in a long time, maybe several generations. Because Christians, uh, because the Christian might view themselves in many different ways and how we engage in our culture. There's bif- different uh, models and paradigms and answers to the question, how ought a Christian live in relationship to their world around us? And so as the culture changes and, and as uh, values change, the Christian should be asking themselves, How do we live? How do we live in the midst of this culture? And today it's very important that we continue to ask that question. And our passage this morning just goes right into it. And so this morning I want to show three common ways that the Christians live in culture. And then I want to give an alternate way to live in light of those three different ways. Um, I I won't keep you in suspense. The first three uh, are are ways to live that have commonly been held in our culture today and and in other generations. And then the alternate way is going to be the right way, okay? Uh, Just to not keep you in suspense. Um, First, uh, Gregory Thompson is a pastor at Trinity Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he wrote this article called The Church in Our Time, Nurturing Congregations of faithful presence. And his article lists these different paradigms, and I'll, um, we'll look at them this morning. The first is fortification. It's called fortification. And this is the idea that uh, the fortification model sees that the Christian is to preserve the distinct Christian values of our culture. 
and they're once held in our culture. So there's this idea that, if you've ever heard this phrase, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You ever heard that? And so the, the role of the Christian is that when God comes and burns everything up, just don't get any ashes on you. And so stay away from it. Uh, the world's going to burn, and God is angry, and the culture is evil, and they're doing their thing. So let's just stay at a distance, maintain our Christian values, wait for Jesus to come back, and he'll make everything better. Another model that is commonly held is, is accommodation. It's really the opposite of fortification. Uh, the Christian sees the world as this progressive movement towards human flourishing, and the long-held ethics of Christianity and values of Christianity are they're outdated, uh, they're contextual to a time period that is not relevant anymore, and so to really think of Christian values as they're presented in, in Scripture is, is really uh, archaic and irrelevant for today. And so the best that a Christian can do is to collaborate with the world and and if the church does not get on board with the changing politics, the changing values of our culture, then the church will go extinct. And so to preserve the Christian church is actually to uh, become like the culture, to learn from the culture, and to assimilate into the culture so that we can have relationship um, with those um, not a part of the church. Another uh, third one is domination. So the domination model suggests that a calling of the Christian is to labor intentionally passionately, excuse me, aggressively uh, to uh, extend the values of the church into the culture in every arena of life, taking over the culture through political or professional power at times. And so I don't know, maybe you look at these paradigms, maybe you have been shaped by one of these, maybe a combination of these, but these are some commonly held ones in our time. How do we answer that question? How does the Christian engage in a culture that, is, that seems to be increasingly distant from God. All these models seek to be a faithful presence in our world, but have failed in many ways too. Is there a biblical model more faithful? Is there a faithfully biblical way for the Christian to engage in culture without compromising their allegiance to Jesus while being compassionate uh, to the world? We need to ask this question, and Peter walks us through this in his passage. And the answer is not accommodation or assimilation. The answer is not fortification or domination. We are not identical to our world, yet we are deeply rooted in the world. And 1 Peter implies a different kind of engagement. It can be described as incarnational. Incarnational, like incarnate, in, literally in the meat, in the flesh, in the midst of, engaged in culture. We live amongst and in the people whom God has placed us, right here in Tucson. The Bible uses this Greek word, uh, meso, like, not, like, not like miso soup, <clears throat> that's different, but like mesothe- meso, uh, mesopotamia, mesothelioma. You've heard these words. It's these words that means like in, amongst, in the presence of. Mesopotamia is this entire region that was right between these two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The Mesopotamia describes this whole area that was in the midst of these rivers. The Potomac, the the rivers, that's what that word means. And the Christians are to see themselves in the heart of their culture. Here's an interesting thing. the, The Garden of Eden is believed to have been placed in the Mesopotamia area between the Tigris and Euphrates. 
God placed the first humans in the midst of these rivers, and all the world was meant to be shaped and created and expanded from within. So Adam and Eve have found themselves in the garden. And because of sin, they were cast out. They were marginalized. They were pushed out of the context that God had purposed for them to be in the center of it all. God has always placed His people in the midst of culture, in the context of culture, deep within the heart of people. Why does He do this? Because the calling of the Christian is to live in the fullness of culture, bearing the fullness of the gospel for the purpose of carrying out God's redemption to all people. He placed his people in the garden so that the world would be built around them. Look here what Peter says in, in verse two eleven, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passage of your, of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak of your good deeds, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. You know, this, this passage is not like this secret weapon. You know, there's nothing like that in Scripture. That what's the secret weapon that we have to, to reach our neighbors for Christ, to be a, on mission, to be a witness for the gospel? There's no secret weapon to earning friends for Jesus. Some of you might feel, and I've felt this at the time, all I, want, all I want to know is how can I be a Christian in Tucson without offending people, without pushing people away, without isolating myself, from, without making enemies. How can I be a Christian in Tucson without making enemies? There is no Bible verse for that. And in fact, the opposite seems to be expressed here. This is when people speak against you for your life, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God. What the promise is, is that we, we will be misunderstood, but we will also attract. We will offend, but we will also be compassionate. We will live lives differently, but people will look at our lives and they will see an attraction about it. They will see a beauty about it. And they will glorify God because of it. And so this morning I want to give three keys to incarnational life because that's what we're going to talk about in this passage. What does it look like to be in the midst of culture as a Christian? Key number one is to be a healthy theologian. Why do I start here? Because this is where every single Bible writer starts whenever it begins to tell us how to live. The Bible never tells us how to live our life without telling us who we are and who God is. The Bible doesn't just start to give off a bunch of lists of rules. Even the place in Scripture where you think, well, where's the rules? Where are the rules in the Bible? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the, the clearest structure of these itemized lists of how we should live our life. The Bible doesn't say, don't kill. Just don't do it. It's not a good idea. It's bad for you. It's bad for others. Don't kill. The Bible doesn't give us commands like that. It says, don't kill. Why? And God tells, he says, because I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of slavery and you are my people. God, whenever he tells us how to live, he defines it based on the premise of who we are as made in his image and his people and who he is as our God and Savior. He never tells us how to live apart from who we are in our relationship with him. Some might want to remove religion and doctrine and theology from our ethics and from our morality and how we live. Bringing religion into how we live, some people think that it, it complicates things. Like, can't we just 
Why do we have to bring religion into it? Can't we be a good neighbor? Can't we be good people? Can't we love others and treat people with dignity? Why does it have to be a religious matter? Why do you have to make this a religious issue that complicates things, it causes people to fight? Let's just all love one another. But don't you see why that doesn't work? Because that premise of saying, can't we just love one another and treat people fairly, is a doctrine, it is a belief, it does stem from a a belief that people are important, that people matter, that elderly, that the unborn, that black, white, brown, whoever you are, that people matter to God, and therefore because they're important and they have dignity, we should treat them in a certain way. You see, when we say, let's not bring doctrine and theology and religion into our life, we are trying to evangelize people into that doctrine. That itself is a belief. To say that theology or doctrine does not matter is itself is a doctrine. And here's the point. Every time the Bible tells us, here's how you should live, it ties it to a doctrine. It ties it to a truth that is anchored in the character of God and us being made in His image. Any faithful approach for answering the question, how should a Christian engage in culture, must be fully grounded in the timeless truths of our theological identity. Peter says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy says, I want you to live differently and I want you to live in a certain way. Why? Because I'm your God and you're my people. You belong to me. You once were cut off. You once not knew me, but now you're forgiven. You're the recipient of my deepest grace and affection. You know, we dug a lot deeper into our identity last week in this passage of chosen people, a royal people, holy nation. And if you want to listen to that, you can go and listen to that. But for now, here's what I want to do. I just want to describe why it's relevant for us this morning. If you want to live an incarnational life. If you want to live in such a way in the midst of your culture, in a way that's beautiful, that is a light to the world and proclaiming the excellencies of God, you cannot start with evangelism. You cannot just start by doing it. You start by knowing your core and who you are in relationship with God. Do you want your relationship with God to influence the world around you? Many of you do. If you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, many of you desire that. You want to influence people for for better. You want to uh, be a part of human flourishing. You want to be a part of bringing people into relationship with God. You cannot begin with evangelism. You must start with what Jesus says about you. Because if you say, the Bible says I should share my faith with my neighbor, then this is what I must do then you, your efforts are characterized by guilt, and if you don't do that, you're going to feel bad about not doing it. You're going to try hard to do it better. If you say, the Bible says I need to read the Bible, and I need to have it a part of my life, and I need to be a student of the Word, and you fail to do that, and you stop your reading plan in February, your year-long reading plan, you feel guilty about it. And you say, well, next year I'll do better. So, so your efforts are characterized by guilt, by failure. It must be a, for some other reason that you would do this. You must begin with a love for Jesus. You will never attract people to Christ if you are not attracted to Christ. 
You will never draw people to the love of Jesus if you don't love Jesus. Jesus is not a project. Loving Jesus is not a project. Loving people is not a project. Sharing your faith with others is not a project. Investing in the the dignity and well-being of your neighbor is not a project. Do you know what is the best way to communicate a genuine passion and love for Jesus to the world around you? Be passionate about Jesus. Love Jesus. And oftentimes we think, how can I do this? How can I engage with the world around me? How can I express a love for Jesus so that when people see me, they will know that God is loving, that He is gracious, that He is merciful, that there is no relationship more transformational than that with Jesus Christ. Then love Jesus yourself. Then be attracted to Christ. Then be passionate about Him and your relationship with Him. What Peter is saying is this. If you want to faithfully engage in your culture without losing your soul, you need to know that you're in a relationship with Christ. Meditate on Jesus and what he has done for you so much until it captures and captivates your heart and your attitudes and your behaviors and everything that you have. Has Jesus made known to you his love? Has he revealed himself to you that you were once a sinner and that you were once separate from God, that you were alienated, that you were an enemy of God, but God in his rich mercy has rescued you, that he has, has given you Jesus who has died for your sins as a substitute? Do you know that he died for your sins and on his basis of his perfect sacrifice you're forgiven and accepted before God? That he has shown you that he has become your sin and he took on your punishment that you deserved? Do you believe that you've received mercy and there was a time when you had not mercy? These truths, we need to let them sink in until we become passionate about them. Until we become so wrapped up in the truth of the gospel. And you and I will, will lose endurance. I promise you, if you have once been passionate about reaching people and having a, being a light to the world, to a dark culture, if you have wanted to, to be a witness to your neighbors and to your friends and your family, I promise you a time will come when you don't want to do that. You will wake up and you will say, it's not worth it. I don't want to do it anymore. You will even say, I don't care. Live your life, I'll live mine, and that's just the way that it's going to be. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you don't see the point of it all. You're like, why should, why should we engage? There has to be something more than your will, more than your desire, more than God's command for you to, to be a witness that can sustain your energy to be what God has called us to be. But if you know who you are and you remember who God is and who you are in light of what God has done, that will give you the endurance. Your identity in Christ your love for Jesus, your passion for Him. Here's the key number two that Peter leads us into. Not only do we need to be healthy theologians of knowing the truth of the gospel, we need to broaden the scope of the gospel. The beauty of God's creation is shadowed by this shadow of the fall. It is in a shadow of the brokenness 
that was created because of sin entering into the world. That means, according to the Bible, the world, in all of its constitution, and it's completely through its entire constitution, has been corrupted and broken. And there's not an area of, of our personal constitution in our life that is unaffected by the effects of sin. This means that there's not a single area of our human experience that is not broken. We don't relate to one another the way that we should. We aren't spouses or parents the way that God desires us to be. We don't relate to our neighbor as we should. We don't operate as employees and bosses in ways that are godly. We don't have the right emotions. We don't have the right intellect at times. We have limits to our mind and our thinking. Our passions are not without error. All of these things, every area of our life, our emotions, our intellect, our feelings, our habits, everything is affected by sin. The scope of the gospel goes beyond forgiveness of sins and going to heaven. We've talked about this before, that the the gospel is way more than just what do we do to be saved so that we can be with God forever in heaven? What do we need to do so that our sins are forgiven? There is no end to the application of the gospel. If we want to be a faithful presence in our lives where God has placed us, we need to know that the gospel is much more much more broad than just getting people saved and people going to heaven. Peter applies this theology to to all of life. This is true theology. Theology is the application of truth through our daily lives. How broad should we see the gospel and its effect? Much more than just on Sunday, but on Monday. In Jesus Christ, God's taking his creation, which has become broken and marred by the pain of sin, and plans to restore it in every part. It's comprehensive. The gospel should drive the life of each Christian. So does God care about your body and how you treat your body? Does God care about your politics? Does God care about your finances? Does he care about your work? Does he care about your neighborhood? Does he care about your marriage or your children? Why? Because all of this life is all part of God's creation, seen and unseen. And the gospel is that not only do we find acceptance with God in our personal salvation, but that He will restore all of creation. As far as sin is found, as far as the pain and curse of the fall is found, that's where Jesus will heal. In every area. How could He not? It all belongs to Him. There's not a single area of creation, seen or unseen, to which Jesus does not say, this is mine, and I will restore it one day. And so we should see our life that way. Jesus' ministry was deeply marked not only by words of personal forgiveness and spiritual forgiveness, but also by works of material restoration. He healed sick people. He created wine out of water. He calmed the storms, showing his power over creation itself. And most dramatically, he raised people from the dead, showing that his reach and power goes, is, is limitless, There's not an area of life and creation that he does not intend to bring back to his intended good. And these things, we shouldn't just say, well, those are signs of deeper spiritual truths. They are witnesses of God's plan to restore all things one day. And so, because of this, what does this imply for the Christian? That we should not only look at our life in spiritual terms of our salvation, but we need to look at our life and we need to apply the gospel as it relates to more than just forgiveness of sins, but to every area. 
God cares about your life. And He cares about every detail of your life. And the gospel has been sadly reduced. On one hand, the gospel is reduced to this personal gospel that is about us praying a prayer to be forgiven for our sins. On the other hand, it's reduced to this, some, this sort of social gospel that primarily preaches uh, for uh, social renewal and physical healing and the support of human uh, flourishing. But the Christians should embrace a much broader gospel that believes in God's amazing promise that in Christ all things will be restored. And so the Christian needs to be so passionate about salvation and personal forgiveness and so passionate about the human flourishing in all aspects of their life. Here's key number three. And this is where it applies to us. And Now what do we do? In light of that and who we are and the reach of the gospel is to be a faithful presence to a watching world. Verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How can the average person engage in the mission of God? How can the average person, the average Christian, engage in culture? Because this is maybe a place where some of you might struggle and, and stop and say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a witness for God and an evangelist for the gospel? Does that mean I have to go to seminary? I have to now take Bible classes? I have to go into ministry? I have to find a church where I can intern or become a pastor? What does it look like for the Christian, the follower of Christ, to, to be vitally engaged in God's mission? The call of God to his people is to attract the world to God through the quality of our life, through the beauty of the life of a Christian. Here's what the first passage, uh, this passage suggests. First, through the endless rhythms of ordinary decisions. The ordinary life of a Christian is meant to embody a certain kind of anticipation of God's forever restored world. The everyday rhythm of your life and the decisions that you make ought to demonstrate that God is Lord over all and He will restore all things and we are giving uh, the world a hint of what this looks like in all of its beauty and integrity and function we want to show that to the world. How does the ordinary Christian engage in the mission of God? Well, they invite their neighbors to uh, church events. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> I'm going to be a good missionary. Our church is doing something. I'm going to throw a flyer in the mail. I'm going to invite them to a church event. Now, this is great. Obviously, this is great. It's a great step. If the church is doing something, invite them. If you have a, a group, a home group, a life group that you're meeting with, invite them to be a part of that. Of course, invite people to join you in what you are doing. But so often the Christian will think the best way that I can engage in God's mission is to tell them about this event that the church is doing that is an evangelist, evangelistic thing. I'll, I'll bring them to church and they'll hear the gospel preach. Of course, do that. But Peter is saying the life of the Christian is the evangelistic event. Your life is the evangelistic event that the world is looking at. That should be a picture of the gospel played out. Oh, dang it. This changes your life. This changes how you live. 
This changes how you work and how you play and how you recreate and with whom you do all of these things. It changes how you think about your life and how you prioritize things. And that's good. To follow Christ, we are to follow Him and to, to, to become less of ourselves and more of Christ and taking on His love and His life and His example and His words. The Christian should have a beautiful life. The Christian should have beautiful marriages. The Christian should have a beautiful uh, bank account. The Christian, and by that I don't mean like a large one, but rather a faithful steward of one. The Christian should have a, a beautiful front yard. The world should look at the life of a Christian and that life should be different, utterly different. That would make people wonder, why do they do that? And I don't mean, why does that Christian neighbor never bring back their garbage can from the curb? You know, that's, that's, that's my weakness. I, I need to get better at that. To, to, there needs to be a beautiful life, a beautiful flow of how we care for everything. Oh, well, they're citizens of heaven, and apparently they don't need to bring their garbage back, you know. <laughs> the world should look at your life and wonder, why do you do it that way? Why, why do you do that? Do, do, does the world wonder about your life? Do you think that they do? Do, do, they, do you give them reason to wonder? Do they wonder how you could have a, a good time at a party and laugh with full laughs and have joy and have a lot of fun without being drunk? Has anyone ever wondered that? Hey, I noticed that you, weren't, you really didn't drink as much as everybody else, but you seemed to have a great time. Now, you may not dance as good as everybody else, but you, can you have, like, can you have fun? Can you have a, a, a heart full of joy without being drunk, without having a drink in your hand? Does the world wonder, why do you do that? Does the world wonder, why does, yeah, I know you've been with this, you've had a girlfriend and a boyfriend for, for several years, and... You know, they always leave the house at, at night. When, you know, after you guys go out, they always, they always leave. I mean, why do you do that? Why don't they stay with you? Why don't you live together? Does the world wonder why you make decisions that you make regarding your money, regarding sex, regarding power and how you lead others or treat others or influence people with, with whom God has given you responsibility? Do people wonder about how you treat others? Hey, I noticed that that person said something really nasty to you, and man, if I were you, I would have just come right back at him. I wonder, why, why, why didn't you do that? Were you scared? Verse 11 says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. First thing to notice is that strong appetites and desires can be controlled. Sexual desires, overspending, overeating, tempers that boil over, substance abuse, all of these appetites. These are strong desires that can be consciously controlled and sustained. The modern world would lead us to believe that strong desires, whether they be sexual, emotional, or physical appetite, cannot be critiqued or controlled. We are products of these things and we cannot control them. 
These urges, the Bible says that when we give in to them, they make the Christian weak and ineffective. Think of all your activities, however mundane that make up your life. Think of your daily routine. You're traveling to work, you're eating meals, you're doing your chores, you're walking the dog, you're playing with your kids in the yard. Think of your, think of your weekly routines, the uh, grocery shopping, the exercising, weekly, right? Uh, you're watching sports, uh, you're watching the Wildcats. Think of your monthly routines. Think of all the spheres of uh, the patterns of your life, the getting, the, getting your nails done or going to your favorite restaurant on a date night or seeing a movie or doing yard work. How can, the, how can you identify opportunities in these rhythms of your life, the daily, the weekly, the monthly, the seasonally, to involve others and to demonstrate how your relationship with Jesus affects how you live? Can you invite someone into that to see how you live? Here's what this passage is implying for the Christian, that when you live your life and go about your way, you are intentionally placing yourself in the midst of culture so that the world can see how you live. And by seeing how you live, you will live differently. The Christian who is indistinguishable from culture in matters of morality or ethics or values or even how we do anything is not a, is not a Christian who is faithful, who has a faithful presence in the world around us. Don't buy into the lie that your tiny, daily, periodic faithfulness to Jesus doesn't matter. Every decision that you make, everything that you do, however mundane, every task that you do in your job, God intends to use it for His good. He intends to use it as a, as, to manifest uh, His future kingdom where all things are restored. The gospel does not reach just to our individual hearts where we are forgiven for our sins. God intends to restore all of life, all of creation, as far as the curse is found. Your life matters because you belong to God, because of who you are as made in His image, because of the gospel that you have believed and that you rest in, because of His presence in your life through His Holy Spirit, and your life matters and there are really no mundane things because nothing is mundane to God. How you speak to your spouse matters in private and in public. How you, <clears throat> how you uh, interact with your neighbors matters. Here's a second thing because it's much more than just this rhythm of ordinary decisions. But the, another way that we can have a faithful presence is through courageous missionary acts. The, this speaks to... In the second part of verse 12, we read the first part, but look at the second part. One of the central tasks of the church and the Christian who makes up the church is to hold the reality of God and His new future kingdom that is coming. And in verse 12, the second half <clears throat> says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Christian ought to hold before a watching world the reality of this. Jesus is coming back, and he will establish his kingdom, and it will culminate in this future kingdom that, is, uh, that will last forever, and we give an account to him for our life. So it isn't just about the good that we do today. The Christian life is not just about morality that we live and treating others nice and speaking kindly to our children in, in public. It isn't just about uh, having value and virtue in our life. Here's the reality. 
people go to hell. They truly do. And this should break our hearts. It should hurt us. It should grieve us so much. And a Christian is not only to engage and have a faithful presence in our culture for human dignity and, and uh, on this life, but putting before our culture and our world this picture that we are sinful people, but Jesus is gracious that he has died for us. God sent his son to die for sinners like you and me so that by believing in him, we would not be held account, accountable to those sins ourselves. But Jesus took that pain. He gives us his righteousness and his life. And he's coming back again. And we can celebrate in this and we can have this joy. We will have a king. God will have a kingdom where he reigns over all of creation. And this is so important. In the love that we extend to our neighbor, in the equity that we demonstrate to our colleagues, our purpose is not only to comfort those who are hurting, it's not only to engage in the personal reality of sin, but to, to manifest this need for reconciliation with God that is found only in Jesus. We make the mistake of making the gospel only personal. We make the mistake of making the gospel only about personal well-being and social justice. The gospel, the most important aspect of the mission of God as it relates to human dignity, isn't our social action or responsibilities as citizens. The most important aspect of the mission of God is the gospel. That God is calling people to himself. He is calling people to himself, accepting them through the work of Jesus. That he's establishing his kingdom. How do you view the future with Jesus? This is important. When he returns, when Jesus comes back, how do you view what this will be like? Is your vision of, of heaven and, and end times like this, and maybe most of it will be like this, it's, a, it's a, a white family reunion with superpowers. Is that your, maybe it's not, maybe that's most of you, that's, what is your view of, of when Jesus comes back? Just his, like, sterile people that are just, have superpowers that are just singing songs forever. How should we view it? The church is a signpost of God's coming kingdom. The church is a preview to the watching world of what the reign of God in Christ will look like forever, that he is calling people from all over, from all peoples, from all backgrounds, from all nations, from all families. God is drawing people to Jesus, and we will be with him with full joy in his love, and Jesus will return, and he'll reign over all the creation with truth and love. That's a wonderful picture. That's what we hold before the watching world, that this world is, is it's temporary, and there is comfort that comes today. There is comfort that comes temporarily in this sense. But there is a future reality. There is a forever. There is a forever with God that we long for. There is a hope that we place our, we place our hope not ultimately in things of this world, but in things uh, forever. Our hope is in an inheritance that is kept secure by Christ. You know, on the double doors outside our sanctuary, when you walk in, there's three words bolted to the, to the wall above those double doors. You know what those words are? Magnify, live, and engage. To magnify God's glory, 
that we are people that, em- that know the gospel, that embrace the gospel, that have people, we are people that have received this truth, and there is no relationship more transformational than that with Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are theologically grounded in this hope. We magnify his glory by trusting in him, by placing our life in him, and being more and more like Jesus as we live our life. We live as God's people by seeing that the gospel is far greater than our personal salvation, but every area of scripture that talks about how we ought to live as God's people, we follow in that obediently. We trust in that. We have a faithful pursuit of being all that God intends for us to be as husbands and wives and as uh, citizens and neighbors and co-workers and bosses and friends and colleagues, all that God has intended for us, and we engage in God's mission. There's a way to approach the present and future without clenching our fists in anger and saying, God, I hate what's going on in our world. And there's a way of engaging our culture without just twiddling our thumbs, waiting for, waiting for Jesus to return. Our call, here's this quote from Russell Moore, and he's been uh, a, a huge voice among Christians on this topic in his book Onward. And it's, he says this, Our call is to a Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our calling as neighbors, friends, and citizens. The church has now an opportunity to bear witness in a culture that often does not pretend to even share biblical values. But that's okay, because our calling as Christians and as the church is not to promote biblical values, merely. That's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is not just to get people to act nicely and to, and to, to have good values, but to speak of sin and judgment and the gospel of Jesus and his coming kingdom where he reigns over his restored creation forever. Living... Living this way, living as people who are different in their culture is not easy. But through the death of Christ and His faithful work of the Holy Spirit, He has empowered us to live good lives that draw others to Jesus. Whatever way you live incarnationally, whatever way you live in the flesh and in the midst of your culture, let it be nothing less than a people of God on mission together. In this, we are a city on a hill. We are a light to the world and we are a faithful presence to the world around us. And by God's grace and love, let's do this. Let's pray together.